Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Jenna Wortham. I'm Wesley Morris, and we're two culture writers at the New York Times. I mostly write about how humans relate to technology. And I mostly write about how popular culture and movies and such relate to humans. And this is Still Processing. Welcome back. Hello, Jenna. Hello, world. What's happening? Well, you know, this is our pop culture cafeteria where we dish out hot takes and cool comebacks. Oh, So shit. I want to know oh. what's on your menu for this week. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, that put me in a better mood than I was when I got here this mm-hmm. morning. The world mm-hmm. is falling apart. Tell me about it. But I do think that there's a song that is kind of capturing the moment. We can put it on our playlist because uh, I also like it in quotation marks, I think. It is The Man by The Killers. The band that like won't stay dead. Um, they <laughs> have this, this this great song about like being an asshole that sort of fits this moment. It's so aware of itself as a joke on a particular kind of white male obnoxiousness. But with the killers, you can never tell. It may be a joke. It may not be a joke. But either way, I am I am choosing to see the jokeness of it. Let's play a little bit of that. You know, I forgot about that synth that synth pop yeah. sound still in existence. Cool. Anyway, the Emmy nominations window is closed. We will find out soon who the Emmy nominees are. Everybody is sort of like expecting Donald Glover to be nominated for Atlanta, but I'm nervous that Brian Tyree Henry is not going to be one of the nominees Ooh. for supporting actor for Atlanta. Who is that? He, he plays Paperboy oh, on Atlanta. Right, right, right. And he and Keith Stanfield are great. I hope they both get nominated. We'll find out in a couple of weeks. If they don't, we'll be sad. Also, we're talking about summer movies today. One of the ones we're going to talk about is The Beguiled. The movie has the line of the summer. If the movie's a hit, people will just be like randomly saying, bring me the anatomy book. Because <laughs> it's, it's a line that just brings the house down if you're if you're inclined to be with this movie or against it. It's a movie that brings everybody together for about 30 seconds. What's going on with you? Well, one of my favorite TV shows, Queen Sugar, came back. And let me tell you, it is so good. Auntie Vi is back in action. Nova's doing her thing. Baby Blue has still got his Barbie doll. Kenya looking cute. The show, I wept the first episode. It's back as textured as ever. So good. I'm so here for it. That's where you went when I couldn't find you all those times? Okay. (laughs) Good to know. I was in Louisiana on the sugar plantation. Okay. I went to the farmer's market this weekend and I bought a ton of linden flower, which is a flower that it's a flowering plant that grows all over Brooklyn. And I've been making beautiful teas with a little bit of lavender and local honey all weekend. Linden is a flower that can be used to treat anxiety. I had a lot of anxiety last weekend worrying about whether or not there would be any sort of violence during Pride weekend. I was 
anxiety levels were very high. Mm. Linden kept them very low. So shout you out to You could have passed me. out some Linden on Fifth Avenue one Sunday. Probably should have. One day when I'm a fully fledged kitchen witch, I will. But for now, it's just I'm just making it for me. So um, I also saw a movie that I think you saw too. Mm-hmm. It's called All Eyes on Me. It's about Tupac Shakur. And I have to say that maybe the most evocative part of the film for me is watching Demetrius Ship Jr. who plays Tupac. He just looks like a ghost of Tupac. The delight yep. of that. Basically, Demetrius Ship is is essentially like a Sims version of Tupac. <laughs> it's like a weird animated rendering of Tupac. It's like un- they, there's like an uncanny valley thing happening in terms of how much he does and doesn't look like him. Uh-huh. But the whole time, I just kept thinking about how much I was really attracted to Tupac's hologram when it performed during Coachella. And I was actually mm. just like longing for that version of Tupac, which yes. to me was more sexually appealing in iridescent hologram. So I don't know what that says about me or the film or Everything. anything. So yeah, that's what's on my plate for the week. So why don't we just talk about movies? We both saw The Beguiled. We both saw All Eyes on Me. Mm-hmm. I like Sofia Coppola, except for when I don't. And then we can talk about the enduring undying undeadness of Tupac. Yes, let's do it. We'll be right back. (laughs) So in the grand tradition of you taking me to movies that I may or may not like or may surprise you and love, last week we went to see The Beguiled which is the new Sofia Coppola film. It's a remake of a Clint Eastwood Western horror film by the same name, starring every white actress working in Hollywood today, including (laughs) Nicole Kidman, Elle Fanning, Kiki Dunst. You know, just go down the list. They're all in it. And it tells the story of this Union soldier who is injured in battle, is found by one of the girls who lives in this, what is, it's a mansion that is basically now a schoolhouse. Nicole Kidman is the teacher. Kirsten Dunst is another teacher. Colin Farrell is is brought to this house to the shock of the women because they haven't seen a man apparently right. in a long time. He's got hormones. They're undersexed. But also, he's the enemy. Let's right, be clear. Right. He's a he's these a are soldier. Confederate women. Yeah, these are Confederate women, and he is a soldier on enemy grounds. So they're they're taking him in, and they're keeping him hidden for his own benefit, but also their own. Right. And so the women are constantly trying to figure out what to do with this guy. And at some point, it becomes very clear what they what, need to do. What with they this need guy. to do with this guy. But we have to say something first, though, which is that this guy is not just any guy, right? It's Colin Farrell, right. like hottie McHottie McHot Hot Flurry Pants. Like he is so fine. <laughs> and you leaned like, over to me at some point and said, "He is hot. He is hot. He is very sexy." And that is a big part of the film, too, right? There, like Sofia Coppola is very much trying to cast a female hunger and gaze and desire on this male body in this very particular way. And when they first bring him in, Nicole Kidman's giving him a sponge bath and it's just like, she's so distressed by the sponge bath. And there are all these like close-ups of wringing out the washcloth and it's like (laughs) the water droplets are so sensual. I was like, (laughs) I'm getting steamy. Like there was a lot (laughs) going on. I've never seen anyone be scrubbed with water efficiently though. So I was just like, what is this even? You're just like... Rubbing him down. I don't, the I don't movies know what's going can't on. get right. Baths. Yeah. Brushing yeah, your teeth. Exactly. Laundry. Nobody knows how to do those things. It's, it's so I'm serious. True. It's always wrong. Oh, it's so Nobody true. can ever brush their teeth nope. right in a They're movie. They're always just like chewing on the toothbrush and looking over and then like rolling it around the other side. And you're like, your mouth is disgusting. It, it you must be. Because you can't. You've been brushing your teeth like this the whole movie or your whole I'm life. I'm shocked you even mm-hmm. have teeth. So, anyway, so the movie's about what happens when this super larger than life male presence essentially crash lands into this 
this nest of female repressed energy that's like hiding both from the outside world and also kind of from each other because they're all kind of hoarded up like waiting to see what's going to happen when the war ends if it ends whatever so on one hand right Sophia is trying to look at gender dynamics among women Mm -hmm. part Mm -hmm. of it and then also what happens when a guy enters into that fray and starts competing for their attention and also playing them against each other like in in a very creepy way he like flirts with everyone even like the two-year-old all the way up to the grandma i mean these are not real characters in the film but i'm just saying if there'd been a two-year-old and a <laughs> the, nine-year-old the woman, whole gamut gets gets a little love from him exactly so i think it's important to to sort of put this in two contexts one is the context of sofia coppola doing her thing and this is her mm-hmm. sixth movie she's really interested in women and she's gotten a kind of power from being one of the few women at a certain level making movies about anything mm-hmm. I don't know what her thinking is in terms of what the pressure she feels in terms of subject matter, but she is committed to thinking about bourgeois, upper middle class, privileged Mm -hmm. lifestyle, mostly centered around young people Mm -hmm. and youthfulness. This Mm -hmm. is one of the few films that she's made to have a woman as old as Nicole Kidman. Mm -hmm. A lot of a lot of the time, the dynamic is between a younger woman and an older man. Mm -hmm. That was Mm -hmm. the case in Somewhere where Elle Fanning's character Mm -hmm. was reacquainted with her, her father who was played by Stephen Dorff. Right. And one of her shortcomings, I think, is that she she can only make movies about what she knows and what right. she knows sometimes is criticized for seeming very limited. The other context, of course, is the Don Siegel movie with Clint Eastwood that this movie is a remake of, mm-hmm. which is a crazy movie. In that one, Clint Eastwood is brought into the house, mm-hmm. but all the washing that Nicole Kidman does in this movie is done by the black slave of course. in Don Siegel's movie, right. which came out in 71. Right. And so much of the initial sexual tension is between the two of them. Oh, interesting. And I don't know why Sofia Coppola opted to phase a major character out of, out of her movie. She spoke on it. What do you movie? mean? You don't know why? She spoke on it. She said she knew it was an important story. She didn't want to get it wrong. She also knew that there'd be young black women watching the film, and she wasn't sure how she, if she wanted to show slaves on screen or whatever. She wanted to say that. Now, Sophia. Sophia, okay. When we first talked about this movie, when we first saw it, I was kind of willing to, you know, just try to understand this this movie from a gender context. And then something happened to me over the weekend. Do tell. So you get to the whole movie. There are these beautiful exterior shots of the plantation that they're on and the house and the dripping Spanish moss. And, you know, I have such a complicated relationship to those images because they're so beautiful to me. But it's just impossible to look at them without thinking of the historical violence that they contain. And also they're kind of images of my youth a little bit, too. And like going to college in deep rural Virginia and driving through behind plantations. And, you know, it's complicated. And I try to sort of set it to the back of my mind for a little bit and really understand what Sophia was working with. But then you get to the end of the movie and there's an exterior shot that looks so familiar I had to google the beguiled and lemonade and as it turns out that movie is shot where lemonade was shot excuse me this brings up for me I was like this okay okay well uh Sophia you want to talk about gender not race you just brought race in this conversation because you use the set of maybe one of the most important tomes about black femininity to be produced in my recent memory so now you would talk about now you now you 
would it bring up? <laughs> now you want us to talk about white femininity, but not black femininity. But this is really just indicative of how white feminism works, which is that it just prioritizes white stories and white women experiences at the expense of everybody else. And I got so mad. Also, Elle Fanning and Kiki Dunst took a photo in the same exact position and location and style that Beyonce and Serena Williams took in that same house. So, Wesley, this is the picture of Elle Fanning and Kiki Dunst posing oh, as up. Serena and Beyonce. Look at this! I mean, they're literally they overwriting. This is like... What? Yeah, yeah. This was, I mean... I love your reaction because my reaction was like <laughs> several octaves lower okay. and there were a lot more expletives in the mix. First of all, oh, okay, wait, let me, I don't have the blood pressure necessary to pass this back to you. If they want to pay tribute and homage to Beyonce, that's fine. But right. we're doing so it within the context of a movie that yes. is ignoring the yes. role that black womanhood plays in the role of white womanhood. And then to put this picture out just lets me know that y'all really don't get it. Can you send me your P.O. box and your address, everyone that worked on that movie? Because I'm going to send you a care package of books by Audre Lorde <laughs> and Bell Hooks and some DVDs, some Julie Dash up in there. Like, for, I'm going to make y'all a package, which is not something I should have to do, but I will do it because this is atrocious. Your turn to speak. Well, I don't even know what to say now. How about this? I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna change, not the subject, but I want to go back to the original movie a little bit. Okay. Because there's something the movie is trying to do in terms of the way the character, her name is Hallie, works in that movie. Mm-hmm. And she's played by the late, excellent Mae Mercer. She and Clint Eastwood, like, Clint Eastwood's character keeps trying to identify with her slavery through his own enslavement or, oh, or imprisonment. And he keeps saying, you know, you and I are alike. We're, we're both prisoners in this house. These women are both keeping, keeping us both here. Mm-hmm. And if, if you help me escape, I'll help you escape. Well, you don't like being a slave, do you? No, do you? Me? Oh, I'm nobody's slave. You mean just went out and got yourself shot up because you like being shot up? Sometimes a man's got to do things he doesn't particularly like. Not if he's free, you don't. And you white folks ain't killing each other because you care about us niggas. White man's the same everywhere in this world. The ideology gets screwed up a mm-hmm. little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Because at some point, you know, he's just liking having sex with these women, Definitely. right? He's liking the attention he's getting. Yes. He's liking the wrongness of the sex, right? And at some point, Hallie's escape is sort of put on the back burner so he can have all this sex. And that obviously gets him the trouble. So, I mean, into that, you have this 2017 version, mm-hmm. which kind of, I would say, cravenly omits that character from this story. Yeah. It also makes me wonder what it is about this movie that makes her want to rethink it. Because the way she rethinks it is not so radical beyond the the elision of this one major character. Mm-hmm. The other thing is this, the Don Siegel version makes a lot more psychological sense. You actually do understand why they hold on to him for so long. Right. What right, the sex right. means to everybody. Yeah. But I was thinking about this a lot after the movie and sort of the ways in which 
you know, we can watch white women be cruel to each other and take things from each other mm-hmm. and, and sort of, because in the movie there's a lot of, in, in the Sofia Coppola's version of the movie, there's a lot of cattiness and like, don't you tell the soldier anything bad about me and like, what the girl say about me? And so you can, you get, you get this glimpse of this tension and that they're all, they're not, they don't really live in harmony. They're just all there because right. they have nowhere else to be for yes. reasons that are not explained. And Nicole Kidman kind of rules everything. And, and I, I love an icy Nicole Kidman. I love it when her eyes glint and she gives has like a tight little smile. And I'm just like, oh, God, what's going on in that metallic head of yours? Like, I just love it. Mm. But we would not feel the same way if she were doing that to a black character within that context of the, t- the period of time. And yep. so, so Sofia Coppola knew maybe she couldn't have black characters in that film and still get you to elicit sympathy and care about these pretty two-dimensional white characters. But isn't that the risk you should be trying to take with your art in some well, way? Well, this is the other point that she obviously didn't trust herself enough to mm-hmm. make this more interesting because mm-hmm. that would have been a fascinating movie. And I wouldn't have been mad at it. I know we live in a time where we're supposed to be upset by trying to work stuff out. But the thing that's great about the original movie is it's a mess. But <laughs> but it's such a yeah. fascinating, like daring mess. Right. And right. Right. it isn't afraid of the history. It isn't afraid of the implications of all this sex. And it's not massage. I would not argue. I mean, Sofia Coppola might feel differently. I didn't watch that movie and feel that I was watching the work of a, of a misogynist. Mm-hmm. Don Siegel's got a lot of problems and he is perfectly happy indulging his misogyny mm-hmm. other places and his racism in other places but in this movie he's trying to work something out and it feels personal in a lot of ways mm. and it feels like patriotic to try to think about this mm-hmm. stuff in mm-hmm. the way that he's doing it and that it doesn't make any sense ultimately just speaks to how much it doesn't make any sense ultimately anyway but what do you think Sophia was trying to work out I have to say that's a great question what I love about her approach to this remake is she's really hoping that that naturalism is going to get her through it. She's really hoping that if she takes all the politics away, all the ostensible politics away, that what you're really watching is a story of what happens when a penis enters a house full of vaginas. Interesting. Where does it go? Who's open to it? Who's willing to throw everything on the line, including this alleged sisterhood, for like, you know, 15 minutes with Colin Farrell. Right. I wish she trusted herself more to handle yes. all of what she was dealing with. Otherwise, why not just set it somewhere else? Set it somewhere else, but also, Sofia Coppola always sets up her movies that they're just about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a girl, but like it's about being a white person in those roles. And it's always frustrating for me that that's not explicitly said because we don't, because whiteness is just the default. But to sort of deny that their relationship to themselves is not also defined by their proximity to black slave labor, that they're somehow untouched by that. I think her interest in what will turn out to be whiteness and white power and aristocracy. I mean, her Marie Antoinette is, it's her best movie, I would say. I love that movie. And I think the things that are so interesting about it are the ways in which Kirsten Dunst's version of Marie Antoinette. I mean, she plays her like a spoiled brat who doesn't have any idea what to do with all of this wealth and power that she's accumulated. I think that Sofia Coppola identifies with this kind of lost little girl Mm -hmm. and this rich lost little girl. She's always trying to fight against her being the child of Francis Ford Coppola Mm -hmm. and Eleanor Mm -hmm. Coppola. Mm -hmm. I think she's constantly fighting against being accused of being a privileged white lady. Yeah. And Mm. I think that (laughs) 
like she had a chance to really rebut that with this movie in some ways. And instead of rebutting, yeah, she know. just she just, she just glossed omits over it. it. Right. Here's the question I want to pose to you. Like, who does it serve to gloss over whitewash is a strong word, but that's kind of what she did. But who does it serve to reshape these narratives in this way? Because she also did this with the bling ring, too. Mm-hmm. She completely mm-hmm. omitted the fourth or fifth robber and that dynamic who was a a young Latina woman who was undocumented because you can understand right like the story of a bunch of wealthy white kids robbing celebrities and going to jail for it is a lot more interesting than kids of color doing it maybe but what does it serve in that purpose like what does it serve there also I don't know the only answer to your question honestly it's just like let more black and Latina women and Asian women like just let everybody work. Let everybody work. Let everybody work. Right. Then if right. Sofia right. Coppola right. That's right. wants to do this, it might be a problem. But we got other options. Yes. And in some ways, I kind of don't blame her given the way nobody can handle being discursive about anything. The way nobody really wants to talk about the work itself. It's true. Everybody wants to engage around the engagement. Find the hotspot, find right. the problem, right. pick it apart. People are talking about thing. this movie and they probably haven't even seen it. just opened. It just Nobody opened. haven't seen this yeah, movie yet. It's true. So I I just feel like I if I'm her, I understand the reluctance to do it. But I also think that she should just not she care. She just has to she either has to not care or try. Just right. try. Right. Hire some black people to work on your film. Right. You probably figured and out. And it's just like when we were talking about Katy Perry the other week <laughs> and Katy Perry was like, I just I'll never understand. But, like, but you're but you're not try. understanding because you are like making it easy on yourself. Yeah, that's true. I mean I don't want to say that Sophia Coppola should have done this or that, but there is a there is a kind of meta level that doesn't exist in in the mm-hmm, beguile mm-hmm. that it's just sitting there waiting for her to sort of openly contest it. And I mean, maybe removing the slave character from mm-hmm. from this version is a kind of contest. Right? Yeah. But it's not an interesting one. I'm so tired of romanticizing the parts of American history and American history in the South that we want to remember. I mean, there are these points, these parts in the movie where the women are wearing these beautifully made dresses mm-hmm. and you're just gawking at the fabric, but those fabric were made by black. It was like made Who by Who made those dresses? Who yeah. Those dresses? Yeah, like, yeah. I think for me, I was interested in what a so-called feminist revenge thriller might look like through a le- the lens of someone like Sofia Coppola, but I came out of it just really tired of the ways in which the South in particular is romanticized without dealing with the actual atrocities of that time. Like, I just can't have one without the other anymore. It's like, right, I'm too right. woke. I can't do it. <laughs> I think what, what I th- would propose to be an interesting project would be to see the original 71 version. Okay. And then see the Sofia Coppola version. Because I think that they, they're in a kind she's in conversation with this movie in a way that is rewarding just to know about um mm-hmm. i think there's stuff happening in, in both movies that's interesting i just think one is much more daring than the other but Absolutely. It's, it, it's compelling to see the ways that she wanted to try to do something that she thought would have been more daring which, Got it. which i mean might have been to just change the politics of of her version of that movie also, rewatch Lemonade before you watch The Beguiled. Just remember who did it first and best. We'll be right back. <laughs> Talk about that Tupac. I'm going to make some lemonade. Do you want some? Yes, please. Please. 
there's something undefinable that beckons travelers back to the greater Fort Myers area in southwest Florida year after year. It feels like bare feet on soft white sand beaches that give way to gently lapping waves. It looks like the breathtaking abundance of wildlife, colorful birds, dolphins, manatees, and more, dwelling in lush mangrove ecosystems and translucent gulf waters. It tastes like fresh coastal cuisine served at sunset at a waterfront restaurant. What will draw you back to Fort Myers? Go to visitfortmyers.com for more inspiration. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think, is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Y'all know what that is. California love. Peak Tupac. Is it ever not peak Tupac? That's true. I just meant in terms of like, that was the largest oh, yes. amount of space he occupied in, in our American cultural consciousness. But, but the interesting thing is like, did he's never left. He is always, <laughs> he is squatting in the national consciousness. He's still riding that uh, oh. four-wheeler through the desert yes. as far as we know. I mean, he might Airbnb out the space every once in a while. Uh-huh. But, but, but it, it belongs <laughs> so to him. You're um, so funny. Okay. okay. So we have on our hands another film featuring Tupac. This one is all about him. It's called All Eyes on Me. It opened a couple weeks ago. It tells the story of Tupac Shakur using the biography format of interviews with a journalist here. It's Chuck Hill. Mm-hmm. And the interviews are basically trying to show how the child of persecuted black revolutionaries became the biggest and most scandal-plagued of rappers. It's got all the greatest hits and players. Snoop Dogg is there. Suge Knight is there. Why do they always make Suge look like he, like, is the devil? They dress him in red. I think they're trying to tell us something about who Suge Knight is. His mother, Afeni Shakur, is played by Denai Guerrero. My favorite actress of all time right now. Yes. And, and Faith Evans shows up, too. Angie Martinez is in it. The DJ, Angie Martinez. <laughs> And it all leads to there's all the famous shootings, and then of course his murder in 1996, unsolved, um, unsolved. Hence a reason for the mythology. And this is this movie, of course, is another rung on the ladder of that mythology. Yes, the, yes, the Tupac yes. mythology. This is the sixth time an actor has played him in a movie. Huh? Yes. This time it's it's Demetrius Ship, who you mentioned earlier. Demetrius is working and- hard. It's really weird. Whenever I see someone who looks so much like someone else, it kind of freaks me out because I'm reminded of how shallow our genetic pool actually is. I mean, there's it makes <laughs> zero sense for someone else to have been born that looks exactly like someone else who was also living not too long ago. It's weird. No, it's uncanny. It's weird, right? It's uncanny. Anyway, 
I have a lot of feelings about this movie. I took crazy notes. You did? I had a great time. I had a great time too. And as bad as it is, it was directed by Benny Boom, mm-hmm. the the video, the music video veteran. If you can name an R&B or hip hop song, he probably directed the video mm-hmm, for it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't really have, it has my, okay, I should confess one thing. This is my least favorite movie genre. People always ask, is there a genre movie you don't like? And I'm like, uh, no, I like them all. I'm I'm professionally <laughs> obligated to like all genres. To yes. have no bias against any genre. But however, gonna, yeah. however, <laughs> I don't like movie biographies. Why? Because they're cheap. It's so cheap. They're you, not cheap to make. You got to license all those songs. Okay. First of Step all, one. they didn't give Benny no kind of budget. The only reason this movie exists is because of Straight Outta Compton. Because what? That was the movie did so well. Because the movie did so well. Okay. I mean, it was a it was a it's a form of movie that now. The the studios feel like they can they can start trying to they do. can bank on. Oh, we've already done Johnny Cash. We've done all the baby boomers. Right? Okay. So now the people who were around in the early nineties are like, like a prime market. Got right? it. Got it. And there's got a whole it. generation of kids for whom Tupac and N.W.A. mean something, and their stories haven't been told with any kind of serious movie making behind them. I love this movie, but I laughed a lot more than I should have, to be honest with you. But I loved this movie. I like sat up and yelled. I thought I was alone in the theater because I went very early one morning this week and I was not alone in the theater. And I was, it was a very loud <clears throat> from the other woman in the theater at that time because I, I had been like talking to myself the whole time and screaming and texting you and sending voice notes because I really thought no one else was in the theater the whole time. And, and there was, was her name someone. C. Dolores Tucker? <laughs> we didn't talk after Prosecutor so of Tupac know. in the media. Can we talk about the one biggest egregious like mistake in the movie? Sure. In performing Hail Mary, a song that came out after he died, and everyone's like singing the words. I like. I was like, <laughs> am I crazy? But that is sort of part of the power of a movie like this, right? Right. Like it refuses to acknowledge. It refuses to believe that he actually is dead. I didn't actually feel that way. Oh, interesting. I want to hear you say more about that because okay. I didn't feel. I felt like it was very light. They were what they were not light on. So Tupac's mother, Afeni Shakur, she was an activist. She was a Black Panther. She, you know, was tracked by the FBI, so is Tupac. They had there were several conversations in the film about what how the government intervenes with black livelihood and tries to take down black leaders. And so there was obviously some layer of conspiracy theory about what actually happened in the events that led to his death. But in terms of all the internet conspiracy theories, like mm-hmm. not, you know, about like, oh, it was six days before he was pronounced dead. He was in seven movies, seven records, you know, all these things right, like right. These, these numerology re- references that are big when it comes to trying to figure out what island Tupac is living on right now. <laughs> um, it was really light. There was a postscript at the end of the film. It just said, like, he sold this many million records. He did this. He did all these things before the age of 25. Just so you would understand how prolific and how hyper-functional and hyper-talented he was during his very short life. So I I didn't feel that it was stoking those flames. There was no, like, moment when he was like, I'm going to wink, wink. I'll be back. Yeah, like, there was no, like, (laughs) there were no moments like that in the movie. Um, Okay, no. But I just think it's mere existence. Okay. is enough <laughs> to be to like we refuse to let him just stay dead and the 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 Suge Knight industry complex is has kept us fed on a steady diet of two new Tupac for mm-hmm. a while mm-hmm. I also feel like at this particular moment this movie's arrival isn't really telling 
we're, we're, this is another summer where we're dealing with now the legal implications of these police shootings right. and how all these all these officers are being acquitted. And I feel like there's something about the romance and belief in Tupac as not only an artist, but mm-hmm. as a corporeal figure. Yeah. Like his body is so prominent in yeah. both the lore of him, his shirtless tattooed body. Everything. And his his sort of unsolved death like we still don't know what happened right and so i think there's a there's a lack of closure that we've we've, we have a there's a lack of sort of law enforcement closure that's out there right there's the this trove of music there's also how alive he sounds in this music there's a there's a hologram of him performing don't remind me don't bring that up like all casual come on now excuse me i love that hologram but it's true and and there is there is a way in which he's become a mythological figure that we need Mm -hmm. Aaliyah too honestly I mean to a lesser degree and for different reasons but Aaliyah also has occupies a similar kind Mm -hmm. of brain space for women I think for the same not the same identical reason but there is sort of a holding on to her that um, for someone who didn't make actually that much music but was also in a lot of movies too occupies a similar kind of heart space for us as well yeah it's just nice to see a slain person back to life there were two things about this movie that Struck, like stayed with me that, that jumped out to me. One is Afini. Oh my God, I need an I need a whole movie about her life. She needs a movie. She is an incredible woman. She was. I mean, not just her relationship to Tupac, which is obviously very interesting because they held each other down in very remarkable and notable ways. And and I thought that was really beautiful to watch unfold over the course of his life. But also just like reading more about her history. I mean. She was on trial while she was pregnant for, with him. She was The sentence was 300 years in prison for plotting <laughs> to do some... I don't know. She was just an incredible figure. And I wanted... And I love Denai, but I just wanted more of her story in general. Not necessarily through the lens of even being a mother, but just as a person. Oh, my God. She was incredible. So we need to talk about one thing, though. About her and the way the movie uses her. Because... It's a little bit annoying. Because she's supposed to hit all these rungs on the on the things black women do in movies thing. And <laughs> like... Like giving him a composition notebook so, instead of a basketball for Christmas. Right. Yeah. Well, there's that. But yeah. then there's the opening scene where the feds is watching her and she's got the two kids with her. She turns around and says, you have to bleep me, but you mother... And she's got... he probably she, did that in I, real life. But in the... In, it just seems like such a black actress thing to have to do. And then she's addicted to crack. And then she has to play a scene but addicted to crack. That's this what not, happened in the movie. Listen, I mean, in real listen, life. That's what happens listen. in real life. Real life <laughs> deserves an arc. Okay. This is this whole movie is bullet points in timelines. I know. She's just true. suddenly a crackhead. She's suddenly like got really a legal mind. They kind of don't really talk about whatsoever. I mean, like what, what happens. She's a crazed revolutionary. Yeah, she's a yeah. strong black mother. Yeah. She's a down crack and out crack addict. She's a lawyer on SVU. Yeah. Like, what is going on? <laughs> What's the character arc of this woman? Paint by numbers. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> the whole movie not even is paint that by way. numbers, but just like hurling gobs of paint. The truth at wall. for me does not matter in circumstances like this. Okay. When I'm not looking at a character, I'm looking at a bunch of sketches. A PowerPoint presentation that an actress is assigned to make it's true. something out of. But it also goes to show, though, that because Tupac was alive during a time when we don't have 
a ton of minutia about his life. Like we really only have these personal accounts of other people and we have his music to read from. We don't have a Twitter account we can pull from. We don't have videos on Instagram. We don't have his YouTube diaries from when he was 12 years old in his bedroom. We don't, there's so much we don't know about him that people feel they take a lot of liberties filling in all those gaps because there's still so much we don't know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. part of the reason why i love this genre of movies even though they're te- i agree they can often be terrible and like a and infuriating like the liberties that people take but the music like getting to sit in a theater and hearing dear mama at bumping at hive like just songs that i can yeah. pl- like they're not in my spotify rotation i'm not out here listening to tupac's greatest hits i just don't think about it you know but mm-hmm. just to sit and like yeah california love comes on and i get transported back to my you know whatever age self and being like omg like mm-hmm. i have never seen you know a version of mad max which i watched growing up because it's one of my dad's favorite films i've never seen a version of this sort of dystopian crazy lifestyle with black people like just game-changing stuff yeah. for me and like Tupac's nose ring and his tattoos and he had a he had a fluidity to him sexually that was just I didn't understand what was going on I still don't understand what was going on I mean I just feel like it'd be crazy to spend all this time talking about this man mm-hmm. and not listen to any of his music <laughs> because the music is the thing that endures the most mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. I think that and it was so good it was so I mean it's so good he was number two one, two, three of all time. Okay, look at you. Seriously. Wow. Like I, if I'm doing my Chris Rock top five, top five. Okay. He's two, in, yeah. Tupac is, Tupac is in my top five. I'm so happy you said that. So I think what we should do is play the best and most listenable song okay. we can okay. find <laughs> that he's recorded that we don't have to bleep beyond recognition. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's so do it. So it's probably Keep Your Head Up. Oh, 100%. Records in response to see Dolores Tucker's being like, you're a misogynist pig. Right, right. So, he does it for the ladies. Let's listen. Hey, yo. I remember Marvin Gaye used to sing to me. He had me feeling like black was the thing to be. And suddenly the kettle didn't seem so tough. And though we had it rough, we always had enough. What I love about Tupac, he's a major key rapper. There are very few major key rappers. Even when he's mad, he's like going up the stairmaster on you. He seemed to take such a joy out of the experience of living that we knew him like as a celebrity. Like mm-hmm. he seemed mm-hmm. to really enjoy the experience of being alive and making music and making art. And that's part of what stuck with us, right? You can feel that vibrancy. He enjoys his virtuosity. And it's so exciting to listen to. Even when all he's doing is talking smack the biggie. He's dunking on everybody all the time. <laughs> he loves being Tupac. Yeah. Like, I, I wish I could be as good as something at he, as he was at rapping, because he gets so much pleasure out of how good he is. So or what role does that play then in terms of why he is so um, immortal? Because the music sounds immortal. Yeah. I mean, even when he's talking about death, you don't really believe he's going to die. Yeah. Because he doesn't sound like he believes he's going to die. And I do think that there's a possibility that some of the appeal of Tupac has everything to do with his being a symbol of black male survival, even though he's dead. Yeah. Because 
his legacy survives. And at the end of the day, we're at this really strange point where in death is pretty much the only time we are really talking about and thinking about how much black men have to struggle, um, black people in general, but the effigies of that struggle at the moment are presented in death. We organize around death events, not life events. Right. And that is the, that right now is very symbolic of the black experience in America right now. Right. They're not hashtags for people out here thriving and surviving. They're only hashtags when you get killed. Yes. And he didn't die like a heroic death, whatever, whatever such a death would be. He died the way he lived, the way Mm -hmm. he rapped. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting how that doesn't really matter when you're talking about symbols, right? Mm -hmm. Like the symbol is meant to stand in for something that it probably didn't really have anything to do with in, in, in the, at the time in 96 and 95. He's now living this extra life as a hologram, (laughs) as a person who is, who is looked up to and admired and believed in almost messianically, I would say, you know, he was Jesus fied in one of those videos. I mean, it's, well, the, there was one that came out after he died where he's like portrayed as an angel too. I am at it, show. Yeah. To wrap up though, we have to we have to wrap it up because we've been we've been talking for a little while. But isn't this why these movies do matter? I mean, both The Beguiled and All Eyes on Me they matter because these movies come to stand in for what we believe to be a historical record, mm-hmm. and they do have that ability to linger in our minds forever. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is important to get the story of Tupac right. It is important for Sofia Coppola to deal with black womanhood as much as she deals with white womanhood. I mean, these things do all end up, they, they become the lasting, uh, the, a lasting imprint too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I feel th- the more we talk about well, no, I think that's great. I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> You're hilarious. That's I'm hilarious. just co-signing that because it's true. Well, that's another nice and neat and tidy uh, still processing episode for you folks. <laughs> if you want seconds, you know where to find us. And uh, happy 4th of July, everybody. Happy 4th of uh, July. We'll, uh, we'll be talking to you next week. Um, our show is a product of the New York Times. It's produced by Henry Malofsky, Max Linsky, Ricky Nevetsky, and Jenna Weiss Berman for Pineapple Street Media. Our editor is Sasha Weiss. We have editorial oversight from Lisa Tobin and Samantha Henry. Our theme music is by Kindness. It's called World Restart from the album Otherness. And you can find all our episodes and fun things at nytimes.com slash processing. And you can leave us a review on iTunes. We love those. So before we go, Wesley, I'm dying to know, how was your pride? Dykes on bikes. Oh, you love the Dykes on bikes. Every year I get a million pictures from you. You love the Dykes on bikes. There is something so powerful about a woman with a big piece of machinery oh, between yeah. her that she is controlling. Well. It's Super down hot it's pot, but go on. so moving. Dykes on bikes is my Tupac hologram. I'm just saying it. We are two peas in a pod. Well, I missed the Dyke March. I instead had Dykes on a stoop, so I had my own version of a little <laughs> pride barbecue with a million women on a, pri- on a on a perch. And it was it was so chef's kiss. It was just everything I wanted, which was just community, good food, good vibes. There was a lot of witchcraft in the air. There was Ooh. a lot of magic in the air. There was just a lot of power. And we were working a grill, so we had our machinery too. Mm. It was hot. See you next week. See you next week. 
you've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay.